the last uh, message from from Jonah. Uh, we're going to be starting. I'm going to be starting something I've never preached on before. Is Second Corinthians. I'm going to be working through Second Corinthians for as long as I'm here. Uh, and I have the opportunity, been asked back again to Opelika, so I'm going to be back on the 28th of June. I'll be going back to, to Alabama uh, to uh, go back and visit my friend there and be able to uh, be an extension of Hope Church down at, uh, at First Press in, in, that, in that neck of the woods. So looking forward to that. Uh, Jeff made contact with some people yesterday at, at, their, uh, at the Presbytery. John Stovall, who has been here um, and fill the uh, pulpit for him, maybe coming back at, at that time. But John just finished his comps for his Ph.D. work, and uh, with distinction, that's what he said. I think that's what it was. I was I read Larry Pastor Roth's email, so John John finished his comps with distinction. He's heading uh, this summer to Turkey to start working on his dissertation. So um, uh, it's really great, and I, it's great to be part of that process. Personally, just you know, praying for him. You guys getting to know him. I mean, he's a great, great guy, and uh, it's great to see how the Lord is going to use him uh, in our presbytery, also in the, in our church, and also uh, in the church at large, as well. Let's turn to uh, ten ten verses today, chapter three of the book of Jonah. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an, an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. He called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man or, nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and the be and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw that what he what they did, how they turned away turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Dear God, we are thankful again for this infallible and errant word that you've given to us. We thank you for being a gracious God as we read each week. A God who is creator, a God who is sovereign over all of creation, and yet you have deemed to be personal. And we thank you for that person of Christ that you've given to us that has revealed yourself, your attributes, the attributes of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in, in such a profound and clear way. And yet, Lord, we understand that the Trinity, made up of three distinct personalities, are very much involved in the ministry that we have been blessed by, by God. We thank you for this plan that we read of. We thank you, Father, that you have accomplished it through your Son. And as we read and as we continue to read your word, we understand that it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that who comes and we pray to visit us today, to be in our midst, to, to give us without a shadow of a doubt a sense of your presence, a sense of your holiness, a sense of your greatness to us today, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we read this verse 1 and 2, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Really what he is saying 
is the, the, the great words of the great philosopher of the 21st century, Yogi Berra. It's deja vu all over again. Really does mimic uh, and repeat what chapter 1, verses 1 had talked about. Now the, Lord of the, word, the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh. And that's what he is saying. But we are told now that now this is the second time that God has spoken to Jonah. We saw last week that Jonah, as Peter, was restored. A failure, a sinner, a covenant breaker. I mean, if we look at Jonah... Jonah is a severe covenant breaker, defying the very revelation of God speaking to him. Um, and he was restored. Like Peter, restored back to the role that God wanted him to do. And we see, as we left chapter 2, verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out upon the dry land, where is where it all began. God brought Peter back. Remember we talked about how he brought Peter back to the place where it all began. He brings Jonah back to the land where it all began. Uh, Jonah was a failure in many ways, and the biggest failure was that he was trying to run away from God, and we saw how that did not work. What, When I was reading this week and have been reminded of as I read this story, I, read, I think about the, the, the story of the prodigal son, or as we come to know now because of Keller's book and because of the work of Dr. Clowney, the prodigal God, we can see how Jonah is both the, the brothers in the story. Um, we can see and remember the, the reason why we have the book of Jonah. You got to turn with me back to Ma turn with me forward to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. And as I said last week, the reason why we have the book of Jonah is for two reasons. The first reason is that we are given a, a historical theological perspective of redemption. Not only, as I said about this, the technical term is called ordo salutis, or the order of salvation, that we see that God does on individual hearts, but he also is a God of history, and we see from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, this progressive story of redemption. We see that God creates, and that God creates man and woman, and he creates them in his image, and then we see the fall in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, which begins the downward spiral of everything that we know in history today. And we see the story of redemption throughout the entire Old Testament till Jesus comes. Because every attempt by the writers that we are given in the Old Testament to show how Israel is doing, their attempts continually show us that Israel does a dismal job, a terrible job of living up to the calling of being the people of God. We see that over and over again. There is never this wholesale uh, revival. There is never a wholesale group of people or the entire nation coming back to the, to, the, to the waves of the Lord. We see that they raise up somebody and they fall. They raise up a king and it falls. They raise up judges and it falls. They go for wilderness. They go, they're tempted. They're sent... They, they, they go on their own, they get their own freedom, and what do they do? They start mingling with other nations, and they start, they start uh, mixing uh, their faith with other, and marrying other faiths, and they start uh, making deals with other kings for their own safety and their own prosperity. And we see that it just it never goes up and never gets good. It always goes down and down and down. So that's I'm hoping you see that redemption in the story, in, in the book, the history of the Bible, is we're seeing that this is a dismal, this is a dismal, a failing, a failure of humanity to try to please God. Even the people of God, given God's revelation, given God making an intimate covenant with his people through the prophets and through the kings and through his word and through all the 
all these, um, the rituals and the temples and the tabernacles and the pillars and all of the miracles, everything, their hearts were continually hard. Now, it's not to say it was wholesale. It wasn't that there were people who were faithful saints and followers of Christ, of one who is going to come one day and to deliver them. Because there were believers in the Old Testament for sure. But we see that there is a failure. This is a temp of man trying to please God and trying to worship God and trying to do everything that you and I have done prior to this point and even in our sinfulness still continue to do is that we are always in need of repentance and we are always in need of mercy of God even though we know who Christ is. So we see the story here is about this historical redemption, the history of salvation in the Bible. That's why he says here in verse 38 of chapter 12, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so, was, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights into the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up, against, uh, rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented. Now you see, Jesus is knocking Israel is going after the leadership of Israel here, is really giving them a one-two punch because these Ninevites, who are horrifically evil people, repented, and they are going to condemn Israel because of their lack of repentance. Jonah reflects Israel. Jonah is a metaphor for what's going on in Israel and what Israel has always stood for. And he says, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here, meaning that the sign of Jonah going to preach to the Ninevites is all that they need. So we see in this that Jesus is telling this story to them because he is indicting. He is indicting Israel. He is telling them that you are just as good as the, the history of your forefathers. You don't get it. You've had all the privileges. You've had everything. You were you the people that I have given all of my revelation to. I've done all these miracles. I've given you my word. I've given you the temple. I've given you the word of God, the tablets. I've given you manna. I've given you every sign and wonder that you could possibly think of, and it's not enough for you. It's not enough. So he says the only sign you're going to get is the sign of God's mercy to the Ninevites. And that's what, that's what he is just slamming him with. That's why they want to kill Jesus. That's why they're so mad at him. We see it's about historical uh, redemption, the, the, the story of salvation, the history of salvation, but we're also seeing that Jesus is using this story. That's why we have this story to tell us two things about Jesus being the one who, really if you go back to Jonah, the one who was given his life as a scapegoat for those men on the boat, those sailors, and saved them, and then was vomited out, came out of the earth, or the three days, and then came and preached the gospel, and came out and gave his word. And that's a sign of who Jesus is. I mean, Jonah is pointing to, or foreshadowing who Jesus is. He is a type of Jesus. Now, a pretty bad type of Jesus as were lots of people who God used. And you and I know that sometimes we're pretty bad witnesses, and we're pretty bad at what we do, and yet God, in his mercy and grace, still uses us. So this is what this story is about. This story is about Jonah, and this was written and, and is a part of the canon of the Old Testament to, to really kick Israel, to really chastise them to really cause them to wake up wake up 
the mercy of God is greater and broader and deeper than you can ever expect. But as I go back to this whole thing about the prodigal son, you think about this, is that Jonah felt that he was too good to go to the Ninevites. Why? Because Israel thought that they were better than everybody else. They were in like Flint. They, they trampled on the grace of God. They trampled on God's glory, thinking that they were Jews. They've got Moses. They've got Abraham as their father. They've got the temple. They've got the Ten Commandments. They've got all this stuff. They were flaunting it and figuring that they have been saved by grace and they can't lose their salvation no matter what they do. Jonah, in all his audacious thinking, thought that he could outrun God and get away from him. Just completely get away and have nothing to do with it. He wanted to get away what did the writer say? From the presence of the Lord. So Jonah is this older son who feels entitled. Why didn't you kill a calf for me? I've been here all the time. I've been your son. I've done my duty. I've done what was expected of me. You should have seen that. I deserve it. I'm faithful. So you can see how Israel is depicted in that story of the prodigal son and then the other one is Jonah who is or Israel who is running away they feel that they can get away from God they want the blessings of God but they don't need they don't want to be around God they want to do what they want to do and so what do they do they think by getting away from God they're going to be free they think they've got freedom by being away as the prodigal son did as the one son who went off said dad you're as good as dead. Just give me my money and let me go. Let me do what I want to do. And this is as we see Jonah, who thinks he's fleeing from God and thinks that the presence of God he can get away from, even though he is theologically adept. He does understand the Bible. He does understand God's omnipresence and God's, uh, God's omniscience. He's still in his practical means and in a practical theological perspective, he is separating himself, thinking he's the faster I can get away from God, the freer I'll be. And you and I know that he has had no freedom whatsoever. And you and I know that when we think we divorce ourselves from God, and people who you talk about the Lord saying, oh no, i got to give up everything if I'm going to follow Jesus, realize that we're not giving up anything but giving, getting, giving, giving everything. We don't give anything away. We then are given everything, eternal life, and all the blessings. But they think that God is going to, you know, God's going to keep them a prisoner, and God's going to hold them into this box, and God's going to make them dance to a certain kind of music, and God's going to make them j jump to certain orders. And that's, that's not freedom. But we see that Jonah wanted freedom, and he didn't get it. So what does God do? God pursues Jonah. God pursues Jonah like the father, runs out, picks up his garment, and runs out and meets his disobedient, wretched son. And this is what this is. This is why, I mean, to me, it looks, keeps on pointing back to this great story about who God is. And this is rubbing into the face of Israel. Wake up. Don't you guys know what, who you have? And you don't take any blessing in that whatsoever. So then he says to Jonah, Jonah, a second time, arise, Jonah, arise. Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city. This time, he says, call out against it in the message that I tell you. Notice, that wasn't there before. Now God specifically goes, listen, Jonah, I told you to go last time. This time, you're going in, you're going to say what I want you to say. Now, we can speculate with a lot of things in a verse prior to that of, how on earth did Jonah ever get to Nineveh? Now, if, he, if this great fish, who he, not just in his mouth, but you think about this, he was in the belly, in the belly of that fish. We don't, we, you know, <clears throat> we are told that he was in it for three days, okay, for a period of time. We said it didn't have to be three uh, consecutive days. It could have been a part 
of different days, just like as Jesus was in, in buried in, in the tomb for part of three days. Jonah had to get to Nineveh. So we don't know, nor does it make a difference for people who really care what this story is about. Now, you and I can spend a lot of time with lots of people, and people who are looking for issues can always spend a lot of time on this stuff and gives them lots of ammo. Well, how did he get there? And what time long did it take? And, you know, what does this mean? And what does that mean? He must have smelled like awful. He must have looked terrible. You know, from the juices in his stomach, he must have had his skin bleached. You know, all that kind of stuff. Well, no one tells us how long. If he, there's no ocean and there's no body of water near Nineveh. It's still, when he gets land, he still has five to 600 miles to go. So it isn't that he, you know, some miraculous way, the, the great fish turns into a, a plane and drops him off in Nineveh. And all of a sudden, he doesn't expand the Mediterranean Sea. All of a sudden, it's spread open so he can drop Jonah off. Jonah has to travel. We aren't given the time frame. We don't know how long it takes. In our mind, we always say, oh, wow, he looked, must have looked terrible. And we, you know, it's kind of fun. I mean, this is a serious story. But it's kind of funny sometimes to think about the secondary issues and talk about that. And people do. People do spend a lot of time on how long was it. It doesn't make a difference. The, the details here doesn't make a difference at all. They don't make a difference. He just says, go arise, go to this great city. Now, if, if you have the NIV, uh, excuse me, the ESV, I don't know what's in the NIV, I didn't look, but in the ESV, the, um, the phrase in literal Hebrew is that the great city to God. They didn't put in there to God, but in the, in the Hebrew it says it was a great city to God. It was an important city to God. Why? Because God had a purpose for Nineveh. Not because it was wonderful. Not because he was, he was obligated. It was important to him. Why? Because it says, he says, that their evil has come up before me. Now, evil or terrible things have come up before them because at this time, I've told you, you know, Assyria has been going. They were there for a thousand years. They had several kings. They were just awful, awful terrors of, of conquerors. I'm going to read you some things just uh, that I pulled up off of some biblio, biblical archaeological uh, findings of their reliefs and of their own documents, just to tell you how awful, horridly evil and despicable. You can understand why Jonah did not want to go to these people. You can understand why, why. These people are real bad, God. These are awful people. I mean, these aren't just people that just have some bad habits. These aren't just people who aren't your followers. These guys are really bad guys. And that's why Jonah didn't want to go at all, because these, this was, these were the Assyrians who have been plaguing uh, uh, the Jews for years. And they, at this time, it seems, as I said, they may have been going through a lull because uh, History, through their documents and through their own writings, we see that there were things going on that may have prepared them for Jonah coming. Now, during this time where I read that, that uh, there was an eclipse, there were earthquakes, there was famine, there were wars going on internally, there were riots going on amongst the people, they were getting attacked and losing land. Now, they, ra they, were ra they raised up again and became powerful again, but there was that lull. So, in their own kind of writings, their astrological writings and in their mythology, you can read some of the phrases that if there's an eclipse, wow, the gods are really angry at you, and the king's going to die, and there's going to be a famine, and all of a sudden a famine comes. So, if you can see that if somebody's just watching all this come out and you had this superstitious writings in the back, you can see like, Wow, the gods have got to be really mad. They're going to be really bad at I mean, they're going to be really bad to us. They're going to treat us terrible. We don't know what's going to happen. So this king, who may have been at this time, they're trying to speculate who it was, was one of the weaker kings and may have had a difficult time of figuring things out, losing in every front that he could be, that he could have been the right person at the right time for Jonah to come to give this five-word message. Now, some of you probably wish that I would speak five words and end it. 
not so lucky, people. Um, that, and again, just because I think other people think, some people it was literally, this is all, this, I want you to say this. And what was the message? He said this. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's all he said. Didn't say repent. Didn't say God's coming. Didn't say Elohim's coming. Didn't say Yahweh's coming. Didn't say anything. Didn't even mention God. Just said, just said, You're, this city in 40 days is going to be overthrown. Well, if you hear that from some wacky guy who you don't even know, walking in the streets, I mean, can you imagine walking down Boston Spa, down, you know, by Whistling Kettle, and somebody just walking the streets and say, in 40 days, Boston Spa is going to be overturned. You know, mm, we're going to call one of Jim Cornick's old friends. <laughs> Hopefully with a jacket. And take them away. This is, this is the message that, that he gave. Now, he, because we see what this king, how he responded, it may, there may have been more. Jonah may have said more, but again, it doesn't make a difference. The, different, the, 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 the thing is, is that Jonah went there, reluctant as all get out, because the person who we read about in chapter 2, and you now you're going to read in chapter 4, isn't the guy that we thought that he may have turned into be. You're going to find out that he went there because he had no other choice. He wasn't willing. He wasn't happy. He did not love the Ninevites. In fact, he hated the Ninevites, but had to do what God wanted him to do. So we see that maybe, maybe he was, this whole situation was set up, as God can use, by all these situations, by their own writings, and by these natural disasters, and by these geopolitical issues that are taking place, that when this guy showed up, who was not your happiest camper in the world, walked in and just said these words, and, you know, how many times did he say it? We don't know. No, it says here, it says that he uh, called, it was a great city, um, and it was an important city to God, a three days journey in breath. That's another issue. Again, doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Some people say it took three days. It, it, it coined a phrase. One day was a short visit. Three days was a longer visit. He could have just thrown that as, as a phrase and term, meaning that it was a long time to get there. Could have been a phrase of the day. Three days, it took three days to get there. Or it was such a big city that it took three days to go from one end to the other. Or Jonah just could not walk in the city and start barking out these words without some ramifications Maybe the first day was meeting the elders of the city, getting word to the king, and the process, the political process, or the approval process to be in the city took three days. It was a, it was a elaborate situation, and it took three days. None of it makes any difference. Just want to let you know. It's fun to think about these things, but it, we're not, we, can't get include, we can't get involved in the details because you get bogged down and miss what the story's about. You miss the important part of the story. The story here is not about Jonah. It's about God. And so Jonah began to go into the city and he called out. And the people of Nineveh did what? Believed God. You feel the slap in the Israelites' face? They believed God. We want another sign. We want another sign. Give us another sign. The Ninevites didn't need another sign. They believed God. When Jesus spoke, the Israelites should have said, Wow, he's from the Lord. He's God. He's the Messiah. We need to listen to what he says. No, Jesus, we don't really, you haven't passed our test. Give us me another sign. So you see the indictment against Israel. We see how he is putting them down and putting them down and chastising them and accusing them of being blind and arrogant people. The Ninevites believed God's word. They just believed God. That's what they were. He came there, spoke his word, which is so important, spoke his word, didn't do anything, folks. He didn't speak a word, and he didn't do miracles to attest to who he was speaking for. And we need to be careful that there are places, we've heard me say, that unless there's some wows and whams and bams, it ain't enough. Word of God is just not enough. If we are not, if we do not feel the Holy Spirit rocking this place, then it isn't rocked. 
And Jonah came reluctantly, belligerently just said, and yet 40 days and Nineveh will be, shall be overthrown. And we see that he didn't wait around to see if it worked. He took off. He doesn't see, I want to see what happens. He just, I can't stand this. I'm doing it, Lord. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And I'm out of here. The word reached the king. The word. The word of what was going on. The word of God reached the king. Remember what I always said in the book of, the book of Acts? The word of God spread. The word of God grew. The word of God was given to people. The word of God came. It wasn't about activity. It wasn't about any miracle. It wasn't about signs and wonders. It was the word of God. That's why this is at the center of your church, the center of the Reformation, because this is how God speaks to us. We don't need any other signs. If God blesses us, so be it. But this is enough. The word of God, the word, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne. And notice now what happened. There was, there was a genuine change going on here. No change was like this going on in Israel whatsoever. They were getting rich. They were getting fat. They were getting everything else that prosperity could bring. They didn't care about God anymore. Only to make sure that he was living up to his bargain. It's your job. You made a covenant. It's your job. Notice this king's demeanor. He, he rose from his throne. And where does he go? He sits in ashes. He takes off his robe and he puts on goat hair. He makes a complete about face. That's what repentance is. A total change. A complete turnaround. Now, again... How much did they know? Enough that God said it was enough. We, we can do all the investigating and we can ask people what they are and who they believe and what they believe in and all this other stuff, which is important for us to do. But in this case, we realize we don't know what, these, you know, what they believe. They just, they just believe what God said and they just stopped. And notice what he says here. The king makes this edict and he says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. It is meaning that things that you are doing, how you live your life, the violence that is there, he says, give it up. Now, in their, in their uh, um, belief system and in their superstitions and in their, they believe in their uh, beliefs, some of the sayings talked about you need to protect your animals as well. So we can see why he says to them, he says, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. He's saying wholesale and because of such a famine, it may have been fortuitous for him to not say, you know, this is, we don't have enough food to eat, so don't, you know, don't eat. But don't eat fasting, meaning that, you know, this is so important to us, as you and I understand what the Bible teaches about fasting, is that we give up something that we need because what we really need is to spend time with the Lord and to focus on that, that nothing else, any appetite, any passions, any desires, whether in our hearts or in our bodies, take second place than the praying to God. And that's what they seem to give that perspective. And notice what he says here. Who knows? They don't have any theology books. Jonah ran out of town. He's not going to give them any more information about who he is. Who knows? Elohim, he never used the word Yahweh here, but Elohim may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, if we go back to the book of Deuteronomy, the book of, uh, you know, if we go back to... Uh, to places there, we see that God had told the nation of Israel that how you live your life, when you go into that land, how you live your life is going to say a lot about me. So he gives Deuteronomy, or the second giving of the law, to remind them who they are as they go into this land that they're going to inhabit, that there are going to be other people around, you're going to be living amongst other people, so realize you need to be distinct. You need to be distinct because of who I am and how you reflect your love for me and your obedience. But to the Israelites, they didn't care. To the Jews, they didn't care. Jonah didn't care. This is their indictment saying that now we have Gentiles. We have these awful, here they are, 
It says here, the military rulers said this, as they, uh, it says here, were a brutal breed. I, this is what they wrote. I destroyed, I demolished, I burned. I took their warriors prisoner, impaled them on stakes before their cities, flayed their nobles, as many as had rebelled, and spread their skins out on piles of dead corpses. Many of the captives I burned in a fire. Many I took alive. From some I cut off their hands to write, to write. From others I cut off their ears. Some people I cut off their nose. I pulled out their eyes of many of their soldiers. I, I slew 260 fighting men. I cut off their heads, made pyramids out of them. I slew one out of every two. I built a wall uh, before the great states. I flayed their chief priests and their rebels. I covered their wall with their skins. Some of them were enclosed alive in bricks of the wall. Some of them were crucified on stakes along the wall. I caused great, great multitudes of them to be flayed in, in my presence, and I covered the wall with their skin. I gathered their heads in the form of crowns and their pierced bodies in the form of garlands. And if you see some of the reliefs and some of the pictures, you see pictures of there's bodies, naked bodies of on these huge sticks just impaled with their arms and their legs and their head and their bodies and arms and legs and heads just piled right up. They were awful people. This is why Jonah said, you want me to go? I mean, could you have picked somebody who wasn't so bad, God? Well, Jonah has to realize that he's no better than them. He's no better than them. He's a covenant breaker just like they are. They're disobedient just like he is. In fact, he's worse because he knows more than they do. So, Jonah, who saved you from the belly of that fish? Do you remember who it was? Why should I show you grace and not show them grace? So the king says, who knows? And it's taken from, you can turn with me to, uh, as uh, was in the bulletin there, a part of our uh, in the, in, the, uh, in the bulletin at the top, it says, Joel chapter 2, he says, uh, which is only a couple pages over from back toward Genesis from the book of uh, Jonah. Joel chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Seeing, I don't want you to go through the motions. I don't want you to go through the signs so everybody can see. I want to see it in your heart. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in, in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord, uh, for the Lord your God. And then, in, and it's uh, also um, Jeremiah 18. Turn with me to Jeremiah 18, that story of the potter and the clay. That's a few more centuries, <laughs> a few more pages over towards Genesis from Joel. The word of the God, the word of the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go to the potter's house. There I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I do can I not do with you as the potter has done? declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build or I will plant it, and if the evil does, if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of good that I had intended to do to it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways, in your deeds. 
But they say that is in vain. We will follow our plans and will every and will everyone act according to the stubbornness of their evil heart. This is an indictment, as we see from the mouth of, Jer of Jeremiah against Israel. We are seeing now that God is now showing that grace and that mercy to these awful, evil Ninevites. And so we should see that God's mercy goes to everyone. God is a God who, who wants his love to go to all the nations. Not just to one nation, but to all the nations. And no matter how evil a nation may be, God is sovereign over them. And no matter how much we hate them, and no matter how much we can't stand what they're doing, and it doesn't make any sense, and we see that evil, God is telling me that I need to pray for them. That I need to ask them, I need to ask God to come to them and change them. Why? Because we would want them to understand that mercy. We want all people to understand the mercy that we understand from God. Because who knows? We don't know what God's going to do. Our job is not to keep God on task. Our job is to do what God tells us to do, and that is proclaim his word. Because we do not know when revival is going to come. Look at the person of Jonah. A person that you wouldn't hire as a pastor. A person who doesn't have one evangelical skill in his body. A person, except though, he, when, it, when it comes to prosperity, he can give you that message. When it comes to the place where he is not loving, he doesn't love the people he's speaking to. His love's got nothing to do with it. You wouldn't think that God would use this awful person of an example of a prophet to bring one of the greatest revivals that the Bible ever has talked about that Jesus ends up quoting. And their repentance was real because Jesus says the Ninevites repented. Now, either Jesus didn't understand Jonah, and he got his stories, or he was naive and just believed it. Jesus said, these men are going to raise up and condemn you Israelites because they understood the mercy of God and you didn't. Now, you and I know that it wasn't long-lived because the Ninevites turned out to be awful again after they ended up taking over uh, the northern kingdom in Samaria and ended up doing everything that they did to those, in those, those stories that I just read to you, did everything and more to Israel, to the northern kingdom separated them, mixed, married, did everything to, to, to really, everything hatred against God they could do. But for these people, to that generation, for some reason, God chose to bring this reluctant prophet who was restored by God's grace and only brought God's word in such a short way, in such a short way that it wasn't, it wasn't anything to do about their fasting. It wasn't anything to do about going in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth and ashes had nothing to do about Jonah's training, Jonah's passion, Jonah's ability. It was God who did it. That's who brings revival. God. The Holy Spirit brings revival. So what do we need to do? We need to pray that God brings revival. Yes, we want a person to come here who is going to do everything that we want him to do. But he's not Superman. He is not going to fill the church. He is not going to do everything that we hope he does unless God wants him to do it. And we've got to keep on praying to God that God would bring revival even if he uses a reluctant person. Now, I'm not asking for a reluctant person to come. Or a person who doesn't love you. Or a person who doesn't, because you deserve it. Or a person who doesn't love the uh, world. And nothing to do like that. And don't read into that. I'm just saying, it's about God here. We pray, if we want this church to grow, say, Lord, bring us the person that you want to do what you need to do here. Is to preach the word of God. To stand behind the sacraments. And to practice church discipline. Because those are the historic values of a healthy church. The preaching of the gospel, the sacraments being defended and also uh, dispensed with integrity and pure purity, practicing church discipline, and loving and shepherding his people. That's all we need to, that's what you want God to bring. The rest is up 
to the Lord. That's what we need to do. Because this is that's what I think he's trying to say to us. Besides the fact that we see some problematic verses here that I want I can go into is this verse 10 when he says, when God saw that what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented. And the King James Version says the word repented. And some people get really upset about that. Now, the word repented didn't mean the same now as it means then, but it seems that God changed his mind. It, cha- it seems that God isn't, has, isn't uh, uh, convicted of what he believes, isn't sure of what he believes, and he says, oh, golly. They changed. Now I've got to bless them. It isn't that God changes. God intended all this to happen to begin with, even by sending Jonah. What happens here is that God uses John Calvin. I was going to read it from you, but I'm not going to now. Calvin in his institute, he talks about it that God that that God uses the writer use these words that we understand because we're not God. We understand anger, but God's anger isn't our anger. We understand jealousy, but God's jealousy isn't our jealousy. When God is, you know, God is a God who's immutable. He doesn't change according to his emotions. We do. We're not immutable. He is immutable. He doesn't get more angry and more happy and say, oh, wow, you just made me so happy today, I'm going to bless you. And he doesn't say, wow, you've made me so angry, like some of the commercials teach, about you doing you beating God in a game of tennis, and all of a sudden he blanks you out because he's, you've got him angered. God does not, God's anger is nothing. He is a holy, pure, just God whose anger is white with holiness. Not you and me. We don't understand perfection. He is perfection. And what happens, why people reading these verses, it's happening in Christianity, is that now they have this open theology. This open theism. And to my dismay, InVarsity Press, back in the 1980s, started publishing books about the openness of God. Because they teach that God is open. Now this is what he says uh, one guy, one, the, the, the explanation for open theology is this. God is omniscient about settled realities, but the, fir- the future that God leaves open can be known only as open possibilities without God having any specific knowledge. See, God's open, God is settled in the things that he knows, but there are things that God doesn't know, and he's open in his providence to possibilities. To me, the conditions of love, God exercises general rather than specific sovereignty, which explains why God does not prevent all evil. God does not completely control or in any sense will evil, uh, will evil, the will, he wills evil, because the world is held hostage to a cosmic evil force. God only knows so much. He doesn't know everything. He's in progress. Now, we got to be careful because there are people out there who call themselves evangelicals in books that they write, in scholarly people, which I have on my, on my, in my uh, office, who are open to this openness. And unfortunately, InterVarsity Press has printed these books about the openness of God, and it has caused people to leave the faith or, under, or really turn their back upon God because the problem is, is they have a problem with evil. How could this terrible evil act happen? God can't allow this to happen. He can't be a good God to will this. How can God be angry and take people's lives, but he's mad at you and me when we're angry and we take people's lives? Just yesterday during the the uh, graduation, one of Emma's friends was sitting next to me and she asked me, what is a deist? I said, why? She says, because I just went on Facebook and one of the guys they went to school with, a Loudonville Christian, he says, I'm now a deist. I no longer can read the Bible because God can't be that way. He can't be angry. He can't sin and then be, have a problem with our sinning. And I understand where they're coming from, but they don't understand that God is different than you and me. 
So be careful about, you can go on and read about open theism, and there's books out there, and there's, like I said, there's guys named Clark Pinnock and Greg Boyd and John Sanders. Those are the guys. Now, I, I, got some, I, I did have some of their books, and I read it, and it's quite an interesting argument. I had some close friends who left the Reformed faith and who ref, left biblical faith because they're now open theists. They don't want this stuff anymore because they have a problem with evil a problem with evil, and they can't justify it. You know what? I can't either, but we don't diminish God. We don't take away who God is just because he doesn't fit my pattern. Last, please indulge with me. As we talk about revivals, we would love to have a revival. Well, maybe some of you would. I don't know. Revivals can cause a lot of more, more work. But a revival happened at the church that I had been pastoring at for, for, uh, for 13 years in New Lebanon. And it's, uh, it's documented. And you've, ever, you've heard of Banner of Truth uh, magazine. This is a very good magazine. The pastor, one of the ex-pastors that were there is a tremendously scholarly man and writes wonderfully. And, wrote, and he was the historian for the Four C's, the denomination that I... I uh, transferred over to hear from, and um, he, he wrote in this book about the revival in the New Lebanon that started in 1802, and it, it was, uh, Silas Churchill was a, a pastor who, who was there, and he started in uh, 1795, the church started in the late 1700s, it's still there, it's, a, it's an old church. Um, Silas came to New Lebanon in 1795, and he writes, The church was then small, and after that time it decreased in numbers by reasons of death and other removals. Sometimes an instance of hopeful conversion took place, but in general a very great deal of carelessness as to eternity prevailed among the people. He says, Churchill writes that people's minds were preoccupied with a dispute over land titles that was taking place. Many, he says, seemed to, be fear, to fear the loss of a little earth more than losing an eternal glory. The condition of the church continued to decline. The church continued to decrease in numbers, Churchill writes, so that in September of 1801, 11 males remained. 11 male members. Our prospect was exceedingly dark. It seemed that unless God should interpose by his spirit, the love of the blessed Jesus would very soon cease to be publicly commemorated and that the enemies of God would soon rejoice in the extirpation of even the form of religion. Slowly, he says, around him there were these signs of God's grace happening, but nothing, he says, was gathering any momentum in New Lebanon. And then he says there were these conferences that they had. He says, in the January of 1802, this conference, this, this uh, particular event, he says, a man at a meeting arose and convinced that all, confessed that although he was a professed Christian, he had been very negligent in giving spiritual leadership to his, child, to his family, neglecting family prayer and spiritual instruction and admonition. At the conference last mentioned, every person appeared solemnized and... And uh, many were exceedingly affected. From that time on, something happened. He says, a particular wave of spiritual concern went through the schools. And the leading role in this was taken by the teachers after they had personally experienced a spiritual rebirth and renewal. Religion appeared, he says, indeed to be the principal business to which people attended. It was almost the only subject of conversation. Almost every day, new instances of conviction and hopeful conversion took place. The Lord then made short work of it. It was then more common that conviction was sudden, distress extreme, and relief soon given. Such numbers came to our religious conferences that when we met near the center of the society, the people could not be accommodated in any house or school. We therefore were obligated to meet in a meeting house, which was unheeded, in cold evenings for a considerable time. In one instance, we adjourned thither after we had, we had been, begun exercises in a dwelling home house, finding it impossible for people to be accommodated. A dwelling house nearly two miles away from the meeting house, where we often met, it was supposed that we, we between four to five hundred people would sometimes assemble in the evenings. 
On the Sabbath, our house of worship was so filled in that the, the solemnness and the, 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 uh, the universal attention given to God's words, he says, cannot be described. The next Sabbath was communion, he said. He says, and doubtless will be forever remembered by many with joy and gratitude. On, the ninth, on that day, 19 were received into the church. The assembly was much crowded, and it was supposed by some that half the assembly was in tears. The Lord seemed indeed among us. It looked as if every soul felt the weight of eternal things. At evening, we had a conference. On Tuesday evening, after a meeting, having been previously appointed to converse to some about joining the church, the people in the town heard that there was a meeting at the church, and four and 500 people came to the church because it was a business meeting, and they thought that the word of God was going to be preached, so they had to stop the meeting at the church and have a worship service. And there was a man coming to Silas Churchill's house to talk about ministry. He was going to want to enter the ministry. He came to their house. He was on his way talking to people in the community. They said it, they used, he was interrogated. All the people in the town thought that this guy was going to go talk to the pastor. He says every day and every night, he goes, his house was full of people coming in and out because all they wanted to do was talk about the Lord. And what does he say at the very end? And I'll close with this. Because it relates to Jonah. He says, There was no uncommon providence, nor any means made use of in the beginning of this revival, but the same kind of providences which the people were before visited, and the same truths that had been heard before, from, but he says, but made a very different impression this time. None, none can therefore rationally attribute the awakenings to anything short of the power of him who worketh all things according to the counsel of his will. We cannot dictate the workings of the Spirit, he says, of the Spirit of Almighty. Yet, account of this revival reminds us of what the Sovereign Lord once did in response to the prayers of his people. And though the Lord has done once, he assuredly can do again. May... Uh, Pastor York writes, may this be the impetus for his people to engage in insistent, unwavering prayer. Silas says, I didn't do anything different. I didn't preach any differently. I didn't preach any words differently. We didn't have any special programs going on at church. Nothing happened. It was just the will of God to bring this revival. So, how does this all work? How do we see this happening? It shows it has, it does, God uses us but it's not about us. It's about God, the Holy Spirit, coming and working in our midst. So we pray, hope, we pray that God would bring revival here. We don't need revivals. We don't need to give the Holy Spirit help. We don't need to make a setting where people are going to come because we're going to have a Hope Church, this is revival week, because we don't make revival. Only God creates revivals. And that's what we need to pray, is that God would bring a revival here. And keep on praying until we don't have any more breath left to pray. Because evidently, God's the only one that's going to bring increase here. It may be through an individual, but again, it is not about that individual. It is about no program. It is about no other book that you're going to read. It's about the sovereign will of God. Bringing people who you may like and you may not like into his kingdom. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you that, wow, there's in 10 verses, there's all this stuff. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us uh, another example of how we are to depend upon you. And as we read this book, Father, we can't help but see not only here in Jonah, but we have read the words of Jesus from the Gospel of John. That, Father, you are involved in everything. You are not surprised even by the slightest evil event that takes place. Lord, sometimes we don't understand as the loss of this young girl, as the events that take place in our own personal lives, as we see things happening to believers around the world. We don't understand what you are doing. But, Lord, your word continues to show us that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. So it is not the problem is not you, it's us. So Lord, help us to be attentive to your word. Send us your spirit to increase our faith. Father, send us your spirit 
has his, have his presence so felt in Boston Spa and the areas around us that, Lord, if it be your will, that you would not only bring this church to capacity, but all the other churches that love you and that are praying and that are teaching solid uh, theology and preaching the gospel, Lord, that, Father, there are so many people that if you filled the churches, there'd be more churches needed. So, Father, I pray that that is our prayer, that we continue on your ability and not ours, that you pray upon your power and not someone else's. Now, Lord, you give us the ability to want you that much for other people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, folks. Uh,